0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 is where we'll be today. As Adam said, we're continuing in our summer series on the parables, and even though schools are starting back, I still believe that summer ends after Labor Day, so um, we'll keep going with the parables for a little bit longer. I wish... I wish we could go back to when schools started after Labor Day. It was nice, way back in the day. Um, last week we were talking about the parable of the soils, and we saw that really the condition of our heart is directly tied to whether God's word has an impact in our life. Right? That if our hearts are hard, um, then then we're not going to have root take. You know, the God's word's not going to take uh, root into our life if if there's a shallowness to our approach to hearing God's word where maybe we hear it and affirm it but we we stop short of actually doing the word we hear it but we don't really apply it uh, or appropriate it to our life that when trials and difficulties come then then it's kind of zapped out of our life as well and then we also talked about what it looks like to choke the word out of our life that if we're not careful there's so much going on in our life so many distractions and other commitments and other priorities that while we may sit under the word, we may listen to the word, Um, it really doesn't take root either, or it tries to, but it's choked out very quickly. And so we talked about uh, that hardness. Uh, If our hearts are hard, Satan will come and steal the word from us. Um, If our hearts are shallow and, and we're not really taking the word and applying it to our life, trials and difficulties come and we get discouraged and we Uh, We don't listen to the word. Um, But then also those weeds will spring up and choke out our uh, understanding of God's word and our application of God's word. And so last week I challenged you to have the type of soil that is described as good soil, right? That soil that, that the seed does take root in and it grows and it thrives and it produces fruit. And we said that there were two key aspects to why the soil was good. There was a level of honesty where the word of God is believed that it is sufficient for our sinful heart. And there's also the word used was patience. The the idea that we believe the promises of God will be fulfilled in his timing. So if we approach God's word with honesty and patience, it will take root and it will be effective and it will produce fruit. And so I challenged you last week in application form to evaluate how you're listening to God's word, evaluate how you're hearing God's word, specifically Is there anything you're doing today or not doing today that's directly tied to something that you have heard, studied, been challenged by from God's Word recently, right? Recently, not just in general, because we could all come up with a list of things that God's Word has shaped my life in these ways, but is there anything specifically within the last couple of months, the last couple of weeks, that you would say, hey, I'm trying to do this or I'm trying not to do this? because I've been challenged about it from God's word. That's what it looks like to have good soil. Good soil would be listening to the word over the past several weeks and trying to do what God's word tells us to do. We come to Luke chapter 14, and I wanna help you to see how this passage, while it's not connected to last week's in the layout of the gospel of Luke, it does tie into the principles that were being given to us last week. And so we're gonna see the connection, uh, hopefully together today. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start reading in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We're looking at towers and wars and following Jesus today. Our summary sentence, disciples are called to surrender those things that we cannot possibly keep and that cannot ultimately satisfy for a greater inheritance that we cannot possibly lose making the gains of following Christ worth all of the cost. Disciples are called to surrender those things that we cannot possibly keep and that cannot ultimately satisfy for a far greater inheritance that we cannot possibly lose, making the gains of following Christ worth all of the cost. For our kids, what we receive by following Jesus is greater than what we give up. This passage highlights the concept of counting cost and the value of the return of that cost before making a financial decision. Is it worth it? We go through this type of thought process all the time. Maybe we're not even conscious of it, but we'll think in terms of, is something worth the investment or the cost that it will take to obtain it? And we may differ on whether something is, is worth it or not, right? If I'm going out to eat, um, Honestly, it doesn't matter how much a Coke costs. I'm going to get it with my meal, right? Cost of Coke has gone up over the years. It used to be like a dollar, and now some restaurants you go to, it's sometimes even like as high as $3.99. They don't know this, but they've got me. Like, I'm going to probably pay whatever it is that they're asking for because I really enjoy a soda with my dinner. It's not the same with a water. It's just not. Um, I really enjoy drinking a Coke with my meal. So to me, it's worth it. may not be worth it to you. You may say, absolutely not. We never get drinks when we go out. Most of the time, my kids don't get drinks when we go out, right? It's everybody gets a water, dad gets a Coke. Because I really enjoy it with my dinner. It's worth the $3 for me. This year, we made a hard financial decision when we went to the beach that I told my family, I said, I'm done getting up at like 6.30 in the morning, to find a place on the beach and hold our spot. I said, there's too many people where we normally stay. I want to stay in a house that's literally on the ocean. Like I want to walk out the door and that's my spot and nobody else can have it, right? So we paid more this year than we ever have to stay at the beach, but knowing that I could sleep in and not have to get up, it was worth it to me, right? I counted the costs and I said, you know what? This is worth it to me. We did the same thing when we, when we upgraded our car recently. I was tired of going to the beach and not being able to put my whole family in the car with our stuff, right? We were always reliant on grandparents going, them towing our kids down there, and us taking all the stuff. This was the first year in years that I got done packing, and I came inside and said, Lauren, you're not going to believe it. All of our kids will still fit in our car. It's amazing. We can go on vacation together. What a, what a concept for a family to be able to do that. It was worth the cost of upgrading. Um, name brand clothing. For me, like I'd rather spend more money on name brand clothing and know that it's going to last for 10 years. I've got some clothes that I've had before we were married. They're name brand. They last. Other times, non-name brand clothing doesn't last as much. To me, it's worth the cost. I know sometimes when we're interviewing teachers at Trinity coming from the public school, they're potentially taking a pay cut to come. It's not uncommon for me to be sitting in a room with uh, another one of my teachers who will communicate to them, hey, it's worth it. It's worth it to come here. It's worth it to be in Christian education. It's worth it to take the the cut and pay because of the great benefits that come from being able to invest in the lives of students and talk about your faith freely. We do this all the time with decisions that we make. We evaluate the cost and whether there's value there with the cost, and that's what Jesus is challenging us here with. Now, let's look at the context of the parable because you may remember if you flip up just a couple of verses Marcus taught the parables previous to this not long ago. So let's think in terms of what is the context of what is already going on here. Well, if you back up, you'll remember that there was debate and dispute about whether um, healing on the Sabbath was okay, which then led into a parable of the wedding feast where uh, Jesus talks about individuals trying to seize places of honor, seats of honor. And then also the parable of the great banquet Where people are invited to come and feast with the king, and everybody has all these excuses for why they can't. Right? They've got different things that are going on, different reasons for declining the invitation. So, the idea being that we should always be looking for ways to do good and serve others, even when it's on your perceived day off, right? Jesus pushes back against this mindset that the Sabbath meant you didn't have to do good, that you didn't have to do any kind of work. Even good work was prohibited for them. Jesus says, no. Like, there's opportunities to serve somebody, we do it. Um, He's challenging them to never think too highly of yourself, particularly in the presence of others, to be willing to take a back seat to recognition and appreciation. He says, don't sit in the best seats. Like, let other people sit there and make somebody come move you into the special seat. Don't assume honor and recognition, wait for it to be given to you. He talks about being uh, looking to be intentional in your service towards those outside your normal group. Serve those who can't, who won't, serve back. And then he challenges by saying, don't let distractions, albeit important things, right? The people that are unavailable for this party, they've, they've made big purchases. Uh, one is getting married. Like, Don't let those type of distractions, they're important things, but don't let those distractions get in the way of greater responsibilities and demands placed upon you by the one true king. These misplaced priorities in this section included uh, maintenance of things owned, business dealings, family affairs. What we're gonna see is that those are the same type of things that are talked about in this next parable. Jesus talks about letting, not letting our possessions or even our family relationships get in our way of following Jesus, that they can't compete against each other. They should never compete against each other. That our love for God and our service to God should supersede all other things that this world has to offer. So in the context here, Jesus is resetting the expectations of what it means to be a follower of his. Our section starts here by saying that crowds are gathering. After he leaves this banquet or this dinner with the Pharisee, great crowds are accompanying him. and He turns and says to them, basically, it's hard to follow me. It's going to cost you a lot and you're going to have to give up a ton. Right? kind of the opposite of what we would think that you would want to do if you're trying to grow your ministry. Right? He talks about the, the difficulties, the challenges. We're going to see why he does that, though, because inevitably these crowds were accompanying him, yes, but they described or they're, they're, they're a reflection more of what we saw last week, these shallow listeners, these hard listeners, who the word is being sown, but it's not really taking root. So he's challenging his listeners once again, if, if, if your heart is soft, there will be longevity to your faith. If there's not. You may gather all you want to, but it's only a matter of time before you leave. So let's jump in and kind of see uh, how this parable fits in with what we've just shared there as a introduction. Number one, don't make important things in your life into idols. Don't make important things in your life into idols. Um... We need to push back against what we saw last week, the weeds in our life that would seek to choke out our faith, that would choke out our ability to grow and to apply God's word, not because we're necessarily anti what we're hearing in God's word, but more so we're just too busy to do it, right? We've got to push back against that. We don't make important things in our life into idols. We push against those weeds, He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, hard language, strong language, extreme language. Here's what we do here. We run the risk of taking it at face value and thinking, wow, talk about a contradiction. Jesus is one time telling us to love our enemies, and then he's telling us to to hate our family." well, I guess I'll do that. I guess I'll do what Jesus says. So we run the risk of like taking it at face value and not understanding his, his method of teaching here. But as soon as we start to explain it away a little bit or to contextualize it or to um, further define what he means, we run the risk of minimizing it too much to where we say, oh, he doesn't really mean that. And then we've removed the conviction piece that maybe would be there. So we don't want to do either. We don't want to be so literal here where we think, wow, I'm supposed to hate my spouse? That's weird because Ephesians tells me to love my spouse like Christ loved the church, right? So he's not contradicting himself. It's important for us to understand the cultural language that we be going on here. Number one, a disciple of Jesus ought to have really important relationships, okay? So he's not trying to minimize our family affairs here. He's not trying to say that your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters need to be viewed as enemies in your life, we ought to have really important relationships. In fact, Christians have a really high calling to love others well, right? That's why there isn't a contradiction here. We're supposed to love each other really well, uh, particularly our family members. You can look at 1 Timothy 5 8. 1 Timothy 5 8 says, if you aren't taking care of your family members, well, then you're worse than an unbeliever. I mean, think about the weightiness of that. If you're not willing to take care of your family members who are in need, you're worse than an unbeliever because even an unbeliever would take care of his family. So Christians are certainly called to this high level of love towards others. So we don't want to minimize that. We certainly love our family if we're supposed to love our enemies. So he's certainly not trying to detract us from loving those who are closest to us. The word hate is used oftentimes in Scripture because it was a cultural way of expression when it came down to choosing things, right? Right? Choosing things, choosing between one or another. If you were to read in uh, Genesis chapter 29, this is when Jacob is in love with Rachel, but he ends up with Leah. The Bible uses language about him loving Rachel and hating Leah. Loving Rachel, hating Leah. Both are his wife, right? Both of them are wives to him. He chooses one. He has favor towards one over the other. He has made a selection. One has his heart, the other doesn't. It's not to be understood as though he literally hated her. It's a picture of his love towards Rachel, right? So there's a, an extreme contrast there, these choices between the two. The love one, hate the other. The goal really is that uh, a choice to love God, here Jesus saying the choice to love him would far exceed our choice to love our family. Let me say that again. The goal that Jesus is trying to communicate is that our love for God would far exceed any choice we make to love our family. We care for our family, yes, but we reprioritize them differently than the worldly system around us. And we should absolutely be a great picture of what it looks like to love our family. Right? The lost world should look at us and see that is a great picture of love for family. But the world should also look at it and say, that is a picture of what it looks like to love something greater than your family too right to be able to say that i love god more than my family um which which shapes decisions that you make as a family right that we don't make decisions that would put our family in spiritual danger for their physical well-being right that we don't start to sacrifice spiritual things for physical things we don't love our family more than god we care for our family, absolutely, but we, we, we do it differently than the world would do it. Disciple of Jesus ought to have really important relationships, but number two, a disciple of Jesus remembers those relationships are gifts and not God's. They're gifts, they're not God's. The admonition here from Jesus is that it is not that we should love our family less, right? The application is not for you to leave today and say, wow, I just got like uh, permission to not love my family well, right? Like I can, I've, I've, been, I've been really loving them a lot lately. I get to downplay that a little bit this week because I've, I've gotten a little out of hand, right? I, wow, I loved my spouse so much this last week. Like I can take a week, a week off because I need to downplay that. Something. That's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying, hey, you guys love your family too much. Stop loving your family so much, right? That's not the admonition here. Instead, Instead, what he's saying is that we need to love God more so that you can love your family properly, right? So we don't leave saying, oh, I'm going to love my family less. No, we should probably leave saying, I don't love my family very well. I should love them more. But I need to leave today saying, I got to love God even more than that, right? So it's not, hey, let me respond by loving my family less. No, it's, hey, keep loving your family well, but love God even more, right? Right? And the picture here is that when we love God more, we actually love our family better. My family is not loved well if I make them gods in my life, right? If my well-being and my identity and my security is wrapped up in my children or my wife, I'm not going to love them well. I'm going to bleed them to death because if I'm expecting them to satisfy all of my wants and needs and desires, they can't do that, right? And if they were ever to be taken away from me, right, I would crumble. If they have if become my God, I can't live without them. And we know all the time that the spouses and, and children are taken far too early than what we would want. They're gifts, they're not gods, and we have to remember that. Jesus is saying, hey, you've got to love me more than your earthly relationships. The proper way to love children is to love God more than them Because our greater love for God will rightly shape the way we love them. Let me say that again. The proper way to love your children, and you could say the proper way to love your spouse too, is to love God more than them. Because our greater love for God will rightly shape the way we love them. If we love God more, we will love our family very well. We'll love them rightly, we'll love them as gifts. They'll have the proper place in our life. We will serve them. We will sacrifice for them. All in the name of serving the one true God. I'll put this in my notes. We ought to be known for loving God more than you are known for loving your family. We ought to be known for loving God more than we're known for loving our family. There's people in our life that you would, you would think of maybe immediately and say, man, that guy or that lady, they love their family well. They love their kids. They demonstrate that. They show that. I mean, that is a family man. That is a family woman. They love their family well. That's great. But we ought to be known for loving God even more than loving our family. That's what Jesus would tell us here. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, man, your best earthly relationships, they got to pale in comparison to the love and devotion and commitment that you have towards me. Don't make important things in your life into idols. If you do, They're weeds. All of a sudden, your kids, your wife becomes a weed. Your husband becomes a a weed. They choke out God's word. Don't make them more important than God. Number two, we need to accept the challenges of being a fallen world Christian. Accept the challenges of being a fallen world Christian. What do we mean by that? We are Christians, and we are living in a fallen world where sin and corruption and death are the norm and will be the norm until Jesus comes back, right? He, he has gained victory over sin. He has gained victory over death. He has initiated the great victory that is to come. He has won the overall war. There are still pockets of battles that take place here on this earth until he comes again, right? When he comes to rule and reign forever and until then, Christians die, Christians suffer, Christians are persecuted. Christians have challenges with their flesh. We want to do right, but we're drawn to the other, right? Paul talks about the conflict that a believer has. I want to do right. I want to do what Christ wants me to do. And yet I find myself doing the exact opposite so many times. We are Christians in a fallen world. And Jesus says, not only do your relationships have to be right. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, the picture here is that we must die. We must die to ourselves, die to our desires, die to our wants, die to having us as the commander of our life and submit to him. Pick up the cross, die daily is what Jesus is calling us to. A disciple here of Jesus will have trials and difficulties in this life. It's interesting to note that Jesus regularly talks about the difficulties and the struggles. He even tells his disciples this as well, leading up to his crucifixion, that things are going to be hard for you. He's not trying to downplay that. He's not trying to minimize it. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to pull one over on his followers. Like, hey, be with me, be with me, be with me. And then the trials and difficulties will come later, but hopefully you won't care at that point. No, he's telling them up front. He's telling them up front. He's honest. He says, look, it's going to be challenging you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Trials and difficulties. Bearing crosses. It's going to come. Like we saw last week, the sun will come and will seek to kill the plant. How deep the roots are will determine whether the plant withers or not. Have we, have we bought into God's word in such a way where our, our roots are deep? We're drinking from the, from the water of life. Or will the trials and difficulties kill us? Will they make us walk away out of dissatisfaction? I put in my notes, there will be times when circumstances of life make it hard to keep choosing Jesus because those circumstances seem unloving. There's going to be times as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Jesus, when your circumstances are going to make it hard to keep choosing Jesus because those circumstances seem unloving, right? Doubts and questions are going to come into your mind like, if God is good and God is loving and God exists, then why am I enduring this? I've heard recently of some different individuals, different followers of Jesus who have gone through unbelievable trials that make you just pause and say, man, why would God allow that to happen? Well, we're Christians in a fallen world where death and decay still exist, and we're not exempt from it, right? We're not exempt from it. And so we have to remember, we have to remember that Jesus told us The cross would have to be borne by us. We would have to endure trials and difficulties in this life. I put as well, there will be times when Christian restrictions on life make it hard to keep choosing Jesus because those restrictions seem harsh. Let me say that again. There will be times when Christian restrictions on life make it hard to keep choosing Jesus because those restrictions seem harsh. Things that we're called to do and things that we're called not to do to honor Him. They're they're difficult at times. They're hard at times. It's not always easy to make the right choice to, to withhold ourselves from the things of this world. It's not easy to remain pure in an unholy culture. It's not easy to remain pure in an unholy culture. I feel feel old talking to our youth and and using the phrase sex drugs and alcohol right like that's 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 what I heard growing up is that these are the things of the world right and you stay away from these things and and here I am in my older age now thinking like man I want our youth to be protected from these abusive things right these things that if not used as a gift become very abusive and before their proper time should be should be withheld from a believer right Certain things that this world can offer are not appropriate until certain circumstances in life take place, whether it's marriage or certain ages in life. These are, these are off limits to an unbeliever, but certainly to a believer who has put themselves under the authority of Christ. And I know our kids are living in a, in a difficult day and age, and so you like, hear me on this. Like I know the temptations are great, and I know the temptations are great because it's becoming more and more common way more common today than when I was growing up for people to name the name of Christ and to give themselves to these things, right? When I was growing up, it was certainly common to hear of people engaging in this type of activity, right? They're partying, they're doing these type of things at those parties, they're doing these type of things after those parties. But those are unbelievers, right? Like, so you could could reconcile it in your mind that, well, of course they do that. They're unbelievers. We're believers. We don't do those things. And you'd have one or two of your friends from time to time that you'd find out has engaged in this activity, and you'd be discouraged and distraught a little bit about it. But overall, you knew your Christian, your Christian friends were, were staying away from that. That's, that's changed a lot today. It's changed because it's very easy to call yourself a Christian. It's very easy to call yourself a believer, and it's very easy to get involved in this type of stuff. And God's word hasn't changed on it. God's word hasn't changed on sexual purity and his expectations for it within marriage. And that's never going to change. No matter how progressive our culture becomes, it's never going to change. It's never going to change. It's become more and more hard for our kids to to hear that and to agree with that because culture is screaming at them the opposite. It's not easy. For some of our youth, you've got to pick up your cross and bear it. You've got to to carry it. You're going to carry it through this school year. Because as you continue to grow and mature and get older, you're going to find that your friends are starting to get into more and more and more stuff. Stuff that maybe they weren't involved in a couple of years ago, and now all of a sudden they're experimenting, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and they're inviting you to participate in it. I'm just telling you, Jesus says you pick up your cross, and you bury it, and you carry it, and know that difficulties and trials will come. There is a cost to following Jesus. We're going to see in a minute, the cost is worth it, right? What we give up in this life, what we say no to, is really things that we're not really saying no to. They aren't things that are good for us, right? There really is, when when you really step back and look at it, am I really giving up that much to follow him because I'm giving up the things that will kill me? right? The sins, the wages of sin is death. I'm giving, he's calling me to give up the things that are dangerous and destructive to me. The world dolls it up and makes it think that it makes you think that it's good and right and healthy. Jesus says, pick up your cross and die to your desires. Say no to the things that the world would say yes to. Number two here, a disciple of Jesus remembers those trials are meant to build him rather than break him. A disciple of Jesus remembers those trials are meant to build him rather than break him. The Bible, in numerous places, talks about how trials and tribulations and difficulties are meant to grow our faith. So what we were talking about last week. If, if, if your faith it was pictured by that seed growing in the ground, if your roots are deep, right, and the sun comes up, the trials come, your roots will dig even deeper to find the water, right? When there's a drought, the, the roots go deeper and deeper and deeper looking for the water. But if there's a hard layer there where the roots only go so deep, the sun comes up, it tries to find water, it can't find it, grows dissatisfied, and it dies. That's the challenge for us is that we don't allow our faith to be so shallow that when, when God doesn't do what we think he should do, that all of a sudden, I don't know if I'm willing to follow him anymore, right? Right? Shallow, shallow faith that's not willing to trust him through the times of having to bear a cross. Jesus says, If you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to pick it up. You're going to have to carry it. You're going to have to accept the challenges of being a fallen world Christian. You're going to have to be ready for the hot sun when it comes and not wither and die. Lastly, we get into the actual parable portion of this section. Number three, remember the gains outweigh the costs of following him. Remember, the gains outweigh the cost of following him. Look what he says to illustrate the point that he's trying to make. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So he's challenging his his listeners, count the cost and determine if you're in or not, right? Count the cost, determine, do you want to pay $3 for the soda or not? Is it worth it? Do you want to upgrade your car so your whole family can go on vacation together? right? Do you, do you want to, to invest in this? Do you want to spend what it is going to cost to get what you will gain in return, right? There, there's a tower that can be built here. That could be great. That could be useful. That could be helpful. It's going to cost money. Is it worth it, right? You may be looking at potentially a building project on your house. Is it worth what you will gain by adding to your house? Is the cost worth the investment, the, the, the general here has to decide, is it worth it for us to go into battle here? Can we win? Can we be victorious? Yes, there'll be casualties. Or is it not worth the risk? Is it not worth the cost? Jesus says, you evaluate, you decide whether you were all in or not. So the parable point, a careful calculation is needed when choosing to follow Jesus. Understanding that by choosing to follow Jesus, there will be at times what feels like great loss. But the great gains enjoyed on the other side of the loss makes the decision to choose him worth it. All right? So carefully calculate it. That's needed when we, when we decide to follow Jesus. And you need to understand that by choosing to follow him, there's going to be times where it feels like there's great loss because you follow him. For our youth, there's going to be times where it feels like you're missing out because your family follows Jesus and you've been, you've been called to follow him as well things that that you don't get to participate in, things that, that you don't get to do. It's going to feel like great loss at times, but the great gains enjoyed on the other side of the loss makes the decision to choose him worth it. Rather than masking the challenges of discipleship, Jesus focuses on them. It's easy to start a building project. It's easy to start a war. It's hard to finish it. Jesus says, don't start a building project or a war unless you're ready to go to battle, unless you're ready to carry that project all the way through there's a house that's not too far from Trinity. Uh, you go towards Sam's, you go down Sam's, and then it's on your left. I don't know the story behind this house. I just know it sat vacant and half built for as long as I can remember. It's on a great piece of property. I drive by it all the time and I'm like, I would love to live there. Somebody thought they wanted to live there and for whatever reason didn't finish the project, didn't get it done. There was a house in Griffin when I was working at a church there that uh, you would drive down the main highway. And I remember seeing this house all the time. It was on the left, on the way to Barnesville, this house that Man, it looked great on the outside, but you could see that the inside never got finished. My, my thought was always, somebody ran out of money. Something happened and they didn't have the finances to finish it. And there it sits and there it rots because it's not complete. Jesus says, don't start a project that you're not going to finish. Don't start following me if you're not ready to go the distance. The appeal is to evaluate the cost in light of the game. There are expenses to building a tower. There are casualties when winning a war, but is it worth it? You evaluate the expense, you evaluate the potential loss in light of what you will receive back by doing so. Going into a building project, will the cost give me a good return? And I'm still getting used to uh, the, the large budget at, at our school and, and the money that's entrusted to me to manage as the principal. Um, because it's, it's, it's so much money sometimes for me to look at and think like, wow, like, look at, the, look at the money that's been entrusted to me to spend to further our school. Um, and then the building projects that are taking place in our campus are crazy. And the amount of money that's being spent, wow, it's just like I, I get nervous sometimes, right? Like, I was in a, I was in a staff meeting this week where uh, an individual was giving a presentation, and he was like, hey, and we did this, and it cost $100,000, and we did this, and it cost $200,000, and this one cost $400,000, And I looked at Chris and I said, we spend $100,000 like I spend 20s in my life. I mean, we're just like this, 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 this. Why? Why are we doing that? Because every time I talk to my CFO and and I present an expense to him and I tell him why we would do this and we talk about the people that will come because of it, right? He always tells me, if we need to do this, then we will absolutely find the money to do it. Right, because our school is growing and people are coming and they are hearing about Jesus, right? And the money is well spent because our school has grown exponentially over the years. And I I always think in terms of that's more seats being filled for chapel services. It's more people sitting in Bible classes. Discipleship is taking place. Kids' lives are being changed by the money being spent. Is it expensive to grow a school? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Absolutely. It's eternally worth it to know that people are hearing about Jesus, right? Um, Going into a battle, will the matchup be worth the cost involved? The general has to decide, is this worth it or not? Now, I've never been in a battle, and I've never come close to being in a battle, uh, but football's maybe the closest thing to that. We had a situation last year where we were looking for a game at the end of the year. I mean, we were just desperate to fill our schedule because we had some people cancel. Had a school in North Atlanta reach out and say, hey, we'd love to come play you guys. I think in their minds, they're thinking, we're a bigger school than you. This would be a great chance for us to come down and show you how to play football right they even said hey we're going to leave all of our eighth graders at home and we're just going to bring seventh graders right which kind of perked my ears because i'm like i mean who do you think we are like we're pretty good like we're going to win our our conference right so i immediately go online and i look up their team picture because this is what i always do when i've got an opponent i go find their team picture and i know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover but i start evaluating kids and i'm like We can beat him, we can beat him, we can beat him. My guy's better than that guy. We're definitely gonna beat that guy. We're definitely gonna expose this guy, right? So I go look at their seventh grade team and I'm like, what is this guy thinking, right? He must have have looked at the wrong picture of my team because this team can't come down and beat us. I looked at the eighth grade team and I'm like, you can bring your eighth graders if you want. Like, we're gonna beat you guys. He asked me for game film. He's like, can I get your game against this team? I sent it to him. I tell you it wasn't two days later he called and said, hey, um, our coaching staff decided we're not going to play that game. I was like, yeah, right? You evaluated. It ain't worth it, right? It ain't worth it for us to bring our team down, to drive all that way, and to get beat when we tried to pick the fight, right? He evaluated and said, it ain't happening, right? Jesus says, if you're a general, you evaluate the matchup and you determine, am I going to go to battle here or not, right? Is, is the casualty going to be worth any type of game that I may be able to get, What are the costs of following Jesus? What are the gains? That's what the parable's meant to point us to. Evaluate the cost, evaluate the gains, and make a determination. Are you gonna follow him or not? For some of you, for some of our kids, for some of our youth, you haven't made that initial decision yet. You're you're still in the evaluation process. You've grown up in a Christian home, but you haven't made a decision. You're still evaluating. Mom and dad have told you all they know to tell you, but you haven't decided is it worth the cost or not. Others of us, we've bought in early, But that doesn't mean that it doesn't pop back up in our minds. Is it worth it or not? So we all have an application here to ponder and to think, what are the costs and what are the gains of following Jesus? Number one, a disciple of Jesus understands there are costs in submitting to Jesus. Let's don't don't mask that or overlook it. Ultimately, by following Jesus, I surrender my rights over my life. We've seen my relationships, my possessions, my aspirations, my goals, my dreams, all of that gets submitted to him now. I don't own any of that. For relationships, I now see myself as the one who serves versus the one who is to be served. That's why Christian marriages should always stay together. Like, that, like that, should be, that should be the ideal, that should be the norm, that Christian marriages stay together. Because if you're bought into the mindset that I serve rather than be served, you can stay with anybody, right? For, for the norm, you can stay with it. I know there's cases where it would be absolutely right for one to leave. But the norm... The norm, when so many leave for petty reasons, the norm should be as the believer. Man, I, I serve, I serve versus seeing myself as one to be served. Possessions, I'm to give versus hoard. We've seen that in several parables. The idea of storing up versus being a good steward to give. I don't own this stuff anymore. I use it. My aspirations. We've seen. I don't get to claim the best seat at a at a, at a dinner party. I don't get to, to do things for my glory and my honor. I sacrifice my glory. I sacrifice my honor. I do it for him now. We looked at the parable a couple of weeks ago where the servant works hard and does his very best and the, and the boss doesn't even give him a thank you really. Right? I'm just an unworthy servant now. I don't deserve affirmation. I don't deserve celebration. Like When we buy into this mindset, it's hard. It's hard to bear that cross because our flesh says affirm me. Our flesh says celebrate me. Our flesh says notice me, serve me, acknowledge me. Jesus says, you put all that to bed. You you, you kill that. You bear the cross. You follow me. Disciples willing to lay aside wants and needs and rights for the sake of serving, forgiving, and loving others well. We lay aside our right to be right. We lay aside our perception that um, it's right to affirm and to praise us, to honor us. Now, here's this disclaimer that I want to give you. My relationships, my possessions, and my aspirations become useful and fulfilling the moment they stop being my gods. Let me say this again. The disclaimer here, these things that we're giving up for Jesus, right? The disclaimer is that my relationships, my possessions, and my aspirations, they become useful and fulfilling the moment I give them up. So you could argue that it really doesn't cost anything. There really isn't that much of a sacrifice to follow Jesus because the moment I surrender these things and stop treating them like gods in my life, they actually become useful and fulfilling to me. It's unlike the fine print sometimes attached to the other purchases we make in life, right? Where we think we're paying something and then we find out, oh, there's hidden costs involved, right? I'm actually going to spend more money than I thought. No, we actually find that what we thought we were giving up, we, we've gained, right? Like there, there really is no loss in following Jesus because the things that we thought we were giving up, man, we just get back properly, Disciple understands that there's cost, but number two, a disciple of Jesus remembers the gains to help keep him faithful to the end. Note that Jesus here isn't calling us to count the cost and then turn back or or turn away from him because we decide it's too costly. No, he's calling us to count the cost and to embrace them because he is worth it. The goal here in speaking to the crowds is that the true followers would say, as Peter said, where else would I go? I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm keep coming because whatever it is I'm, I'm, I'm losing, as Paul says, I count that as rubbish to gain Christ, right? None of it is valuable to me as Christ is. The gains of following Jesus are the very things that this world is completely unable to offer. What we get from Jesus is what the world can never offer us, and we should prize these benefits. Let me read to you in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 24, talking about Moses and the choice that he made after careful calculation about his own life. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses says, I could stay here and I could live my life to the fullest and it would come to an end at some point. And then there would be nothing. He says, I'm willing to give that all up now. I'm willing to go get in the mud with the followers of God now. Because I know what's coming. There's a greater reward that's been promised to us. I gave, I, I'm going to give you three gains here that, that come to my mind when I think about the benefits of following Jesus. These are, these are three gains that keep me following him. Gain number one is perspective for the past. By following Jesus and knowing that he is good and he is in control, it gives me perspective about all of the bad things that happen in my life. As they're happening and I turn around and look at them, I have proper perspective in knowing that all things work together for the good of, him, of, of those who follow him. An unbeliever has no hope in the bad things that happen, right? They're just part of life. They're just unfortunate events. They're just difficult circumstances. But there is no hope for the unbeliever. There's nothing there. There's no good perspective about bad things that happen for an unbeliever. The believer, in following Jesus, knows, the things that have happened to me, they will be used for good. He will keep his promises. Gain number two is I get purpose for the present. I'm a part of something bigger than just myself and my life. I'm a part of his kingdom, and I'm working for his kingdom. Am I an unworthy servant? Yeah. But I'd much rather be an unworthy servant for him than the loftiest king here on this earth, because my service to him will never end. Any rule or reign that I could ever attain here will absolutely come to an end. Gain number three is peace for the future. The things that I want to enjoy will last forever. The best things that this world can offer will come to an end, right? Going back to the the, the sex and drugs and alcohol, right? The the, the great things, the things that seem so elusive to a Christian that that are hands-off for him. All three of those things would come to an end at some point. You could do those three things to the fullest and they would come to an end. Either your body's going to wear out, right? It's going to kill you. Or you're just going to die in general and not be able to enjoy those things anymore. It's a minimal cost that we give up to follow Jesus. The world has no answer for these things. The world can't give us perspective, purpose, or peace about our future. In fact, Ephesians 2.12 tells us, before Christ, before we have perspective and purpose and peace, we are completely without hope. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We must block out um, the world and and, and the things that it's calling us to. We need to ignore those things for the sake of um, the future enjoyment that's to come. All the comfort, health, and pleasure of this world is rubbish compared to the forgiveness, the adoption, and the eternal life. we get. Jesus says, count the cost. Do you want to follow me or not? Right? You wouldn't build a, you wouldn't build a tower and you wouldn't go to war without evaluating whether you could win it or complete it. He says, this is what it looks like to follow me. It involves you picking up a cross and carrying it and dying. But the gains are unbelievable, right? The guy who's sitting in his tower years later, he forgets how much the tower costs, Right? He just loves his tower. I don't know why he loves the tower, but he loves it, right? It's something he wanted to build, and he's enjoying it. He's sitting in it. He's, he's, he's relishing in it. The guy who wins the battle, where casualties at play, yeah. But the land conquered down the road, the families that thrive in it, right? It, it was worth the cost. Jesus says, it's costly to follow me. Absolutely worth it to do it, though. Application question. What are the benefits you see yourself gaining by following Jesus that make the cost worth it I gave you my three you can take those three if you want them, they're pretty good but think about it ponder that you can take them and make them yours but make them yours, like really ponder it and know that those are things that you gain from following Jesus perspective and purpose and peace there's plenty of other things that we could talk about too that we gain as well and they may be more meaningful to you but it's those gains that will keep you following him when things are tough. When you have to pick up your cross that morning, youth, when you have to pick up your cross and you have to go to school and you know that it's gonna be hard and difficult because you're saying yes to what your friends are saying no to and you're saying no to everything they're saying yes to. You focus on the gains, not the loss. The gains are worth it. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you that you sent Jesus You sent Jesus to destroy the idols in our life. Things that in and of themselves are very good, gifts that you have given to us, family relationships, possessions. But God, when we make those things gods in our life, they become super destructive and dangerous. And without you, we inevitably make them gods in our life. Lord, help us to see how you transform the greatest things this world has to offer into good things for us, that without you, they're not good. They're not helpful. They're not healthy. So God, help us to to evaluate and see that by following Jesus, yes, there is temporary loss. There is temporary sacrifice that's made. But God, help us to see through it. Help us to have spiritual eyes that see, open our eyes to see through that loss, to see that ultimately we're not giving up anything that we're getting it all back. We're getting it all back rightly. You're giving us our families back and our possessions back, and you're saying, here they are. Use them for my purposes now. And all of a sudden, they become fulfilling and satisfying in ways they never would have been otherwise. God, help us to see the gains that we have far outweigh the costs. Lord, help our youth to see that. Help our kids to see that. In a day and age where they're hearing such a different message from our culture, Lord, help them to see that following you is absolutely worth it. Lord, help them to calculate the cost so that when the cost comes, they don't wither and die, they don't fade away. Lord, help them to realize that the cross will have to be born, they will have to go through trials and difficulties. There'll be times of hardship. But God, I pray that they would press through it, knowing that the gain on the other side makes it all worth it. Thank you for our salvation today. Lord, as we lead today, I pray that we would listen well the seed would fall on good soil. It would take root in our life and spring forth fruit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.